Cynthia, am I not on? There I go. Thank you, Esther and uh, Cynthia. What a perfect uh, preparation for this wrap-up to uh, our series on the seven deadly sins. If you have your Bibles, find John, please. John 8, beginning at verse 31. We'll read through verse 36. The good news according to John, according to 8. uh, uh, The good news according to John, chapter 8 beginning at verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son or daughter belongs to it forever. So if the son, with a capital S, if God the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I stepped onto an elevator in the hospital one day doing some hospital visitation. And before the door closed, a nurse uh, stepped into the the elevator and she was carrying a a tray, a cafeteria tray with a a plate balanced there. And on the plate was a high stack of vegetables, a pile of vegetables. I remember cucumbers in particular for some reason, but there was a large, large pile of vegetables on that, on that plate. She was obviously headed back up to her, she'd been to the cafeteria, obviously, or at least apparently headed back up to her floor uh, to have her lunch. I'd also noticed though on the plate, there were two ketchup packets, which I found odd, but I didn't think any much about that. And I, just to make conversation, I said, Uh, That's an impressive pile of vegetables you have there. She smiled sheepishly and said, don't be impressed. There's an order of french fries under that stack of vegetables. (laughs) And I thought, how like me? I always put my veggies on top. I always put my french fries underneath all that. You know, when I come to church in particular, I, I put my good behavior out there and I put my good thought, you know, I want people to know I'm thinking good thoughts and saying nice things. But, but always underneath my vegetables, there's an order of greasy, unhealthy french fries. For seven weeks, we've been talking about the seven deadly French fries, haven't we? (laughs) Sloth, greed, pride, envy, anger, gluttony, lust. And every week, we've, most of us at least, have acknowledged that we're guilty, at least in some form or at some time, of every one of those seven deadly sins. And God expects us to acknowledge that. God expects us to be remorseful, to be sorrowful, to be repentant, sorrowfully turn or change. 
God expects us to feel the weight of our guilt. However, and this is a big however, God does not expect us to wallow in the shame of our sin, which is why that song was so appropriate. He calls me righteous. He calls me beautiful. He calls me holy. He expects us to acknowledge our sinfulness, that we were born with a sinful nature, the the overwhelming tendency to do the wrong thing. And and we often do. He expects us to acknowledge that, but, but does not expect us to be stressed, obsessed, or depressed about our sinfulness. John Claypool said it like this, life is not like a spelling bee. You know in a spelling bee, you line the kids up against the wall and you give them words and, and if they misspell one word, even if it's a hard word, and even if it's one little letter, you say, Sam, you're done. But life ain't a spelling bee, he said, if it were we would have no hope. But we do have hope. Hope for new beginnings. Uh, hope, for, hope for new life. Hope for freedom. We have hope. This is the first day, the first Sunday of Lent. The word Lent uh, comes from an old English word that means spring. But Lent is not just a season Uh, of the year. Lent is is a period of 40 days, not counting Sundays, leading up to to Easter. We kicked off uh, Lent with Ash Wednesday, which means there were several of us who who had ashes imposed onto our forehead. Not everybody. It's not a mandate, just a tradition that many find helpful. And so we We were in the park. Some of our ministers were at Big Spring Park, and then we had a service here Wednesday night, and several of us, by the time we went to bed Wednesday night, had ashes imposed on our forehead. When we did, those of us who had ashes on our forehead joined in a long line of people that stretches all the way around the globe and all the way back to the Old Testament. People who've been remorseful for our sinfulness. In the Old Testament, centuries before Christ, Jeremiah preached to a sinful bunch of folks, and he said, repent in sackcloth. Now, sackcloth was like a burlap bag made of goat's hair. In sackcloth and ashes. Ashes were like sackcloth. They were this outward outward reminder or outward symbol of an inward remorse. Repent, he said, in ashes. And And then Daniel confessed his own sin. He said, I pleaded with God to forgive me. I confessed, and I I prayed, and I cried in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus said to the towns of Chorazin and Bethsaida, if the miracles performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And then about a thousand years ago in Europe, in a local church, a minister named Alfred, a minister named Alfred said, he talked about Jeremiah and Daniel and Jesus and the sackcloth and ashes, and he said, at the beginning of Lent, let's put ashes on our foreheads as a sign of our remorse over our sins, and thus... Ash Wednesday was born. Ashes are the the outward sign of inward remorse, but this is really, really, really important. Those ashes on your forehead were not placed, or on mine, were not placed in just a blob. We We didn't just 
rub them on there. And they were not in the shape of an A. You remember the scarlet letter? The ashes were not in the shape of an A. They were not in the shape of a prohibited sign. You know, the red circle with the line through it, it was not in the shape of a prohibited sign or a forbidden sign or a danger sign or a skull and, skull and crossbones bones. The ashes were shaped and placed on our forehead in the shape of a what? A cross, which makes all the difference in the world, which says we are born with a sinful nature, the, the overwhelming tendency to do the wrong thing, and we do. But God does not expect us to wallow in the muck of our shame or to be stressed and obsessed and depressed over our sin. He wants us to know our sin is not the end of the story. But we are people of hope. In fact, we are free. Jesus died so that we could be Free. On January 1st, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which said, among other things, that all the slaves in the rebellious states were freed. But slavery, the institution of slavery, had its roots so deep into the economy and, and the society and, and even the hearts of so many people, slavery would not, would not go away based on a mere proclamation. So for two years we fought as a country. Over 600,000 Americans died so that everybody would be free. So then on April the 9th, 1865, in a little just wide place in the road in Virginia called Appomattox Courthouse. General Ulysses S. Grant and General Robert E. Lee met in a private residence. And General Lee surrendered, and just like that, all the people, all people were free. Except they weren't. Because those were the days before Twitter and 24-hour news channels and cell phones. So what happened, what became a reality in Appomattox Courthouse didn't become a reality everywhere. In fact, word was slow to spread to some places. In particular, Texas. Over 250,000 people were enslaved in Texas. They were freed after April the 9th, 1865, and just didn't know it. And then General Gordon Granger, on June 19th, Juneteenth, On June 19th, Gordon Granger, the general, rode into Galveston, Texas and essentially said, now come on guys, you know better than this, these people are free. His declaration was this, the people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. But even then, all slaves did not go free immediately. For one reason, they didn't know. A lot of them didn't know. Slave owners refused to tell them. Some waited until after the fall harvest. Some never did tell them. And then there were slaves, it is said, who wondered, how can we live outside of slavery? That's all some of them knew. They'd been born into slavery. And they wondered, how do we function? How do we live outside of slavery? And so they were hesitant to leave. 
But in time, in time, farm by farm and field by field, there were people who recognized and lived into their God-given right of freedom. Well, today I get to be General Granger, and I get to say, friends, you may not recognize it, but, but a bloody price has been paid for your freedom, and you, my friends, are free. Not perfect, but free. Not sinless, but free. You are, sin no longer has its hold over you. You are free. Now, Travis, I know some Christians who don't act like that. I know some Christians who, who sin more than I do, and I don't even claim to be a Christian. So what's, why, are they, why are they not acting free? That's a good question. Truth is, we don't always live up to our identity as freed people. Sometimes we act like we are enslaved. But the truth is, we are not. Mysteriously, powerfully, in ways I cannot understand or explain. When the Lord Jesus stretched forth his hands on that Friday afternoon outside the walls of old Jerusalem on that mound called Calvary, when he died voluntarily, lovingly, he made it possible for you and me to be free. It was like the Emancipation Proclamation. It was like the surrender at Appomattox. It was like, this is it, everybody. You don't have to be enslaved anymore. But still, some of us, perhaps like those slaves who remained on, on the plantation longer than they had to because they wondered what would life be like in freedom, some of us still linger there. But the truth is, we are free. Sin no longer has a hold on us. We, we still have that sin nature, but mysteriously, we, we have become We've become freed. And so this freedom of which I speak, it begins with a decision, a decision to give all that we have and all that we are to Jesus, to follow him, to turn from our sins and say, God, by your grace, if you will forgive me, I turn from my sin and I won't go back. It, we, we, it, is, it, is, it is a conversion so beautiful, Jesus called it being born again. Freedom begins with a decision to accept Jesus for who he said he is, to believe in him with all our heart, to trust him and not our own goodness for here and forever. Freedom begins with a conversion, a decision. But that's only the beginning of the journey. Next is discipline. Discipline. The Bible says, 2 Timothy 4, 7, train yourself to be godly. Train yourself. It doesn't just happen. Remember when we were talking about lust, I talked about Job, who said, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look, lust, not to look lustfully at a girl. He was, it's, a, it's discipline. Some of us just aren't exercising discipline. Some of us are saying, I prayed God would deliver me from gluttony, but I keep eating too much. Some of us think, say, I've prayed God would deliver me from anger, but I'm still mad at my friend who betrayed me five years ago. And some of us say, I'm, you know, I'm, I've prayed that God would deliver me from Sloth, but I still find myself on the couch. You know, 
Some of us just start exercising discipline. It's a decision. There's no shortcut. There's nothing. There's no way to get around the, the importance of, of will, the will to do what is right. The will to say, there's some things in my life so important like self-respect and my relationship with God and, and my family that I will not sacrifice them on the altar of greed or envy or sloth or anything else. It begins with a decision to turn and follow Jesus. And then there's discipline, the will, the, the decision to do right. But that's not the end either. There's, there are the disciplines the spiritual disciplines, the practices that Jesus practiced, the discipline of prayer and Bible study and worship and fasting and meditation and simplicity and service. They aren't magical. But when practiced diligently and consistently, they shape us into different people. So that we're not just, it's not just deciding not to be angry. It's, it's, it's becoming a person. It's becoming a person who is not prone to anger. It's not just deciding not to be envious. But it is becoming the kind of person who is comfortable with who I am and what I have. The disciplines shape us begins with a decision to become a Christ follower. It is followed by discipline, the will, the decision to, do, to, to say yes to what is right and no to what is wrong. And it is followed until we die with the disciplines, the disciplines of those practices Jesus practiced that make us never completely like him, but always more like, like him. We are freed people. We don't, we don't live under the, the enslavement of sin anymore. Sins like greed, envy, pride, lust, gluttony, sloth, anger, and a long list of others, however, keep us from enjoying life at its best. Those sins weigh us down and hold us back and keep us from the life God intended for us. Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Abundant life is not envious. Abundant life is not greedy or lustful or slothful. And I think most of us know the difference between who we aspire to be and the persons we are. I think most of us, when the lights are out and the crowds are gone, I think most of us want more. I think most of us want better. I think as we've walked through the seven deadly sins, some of us have thought, I'd give just about anything to get out from under this weight of whatever the sin was. And here's the good news, and this, this is what wraps up the Seven Deadly Sins series. You can do this. You can do better. You can be better. 
A few years ago, I was playing golf with uh, my friend Willie Williams, General Willie Williams, member of First Missionary Baptist Church. He's a retired uh, Marine General. Now, I, some of you might have heard this on a Sunday night. I talked about race and told this story, but I think for me it's good enough to tell again. So I was playing golf with General Williams. And um, I remember the hole very well. We, we teed off, and my ball didn't go nearly as far as I wanted it to. And we drove up uh, to, the, to the balls. His was a good bit in front of mine. Now, this is a long hole, and I, you know, I got out, I looked at it, and um, it's, it's a long way down there, and there's a big sand trap in front of the green where you want the, where the hole is, you know. And I said, I'm sure rather pitifully, I said, I can't, I can't get there, meaning I can't hit the ball that far. I said, I can't get there, so I'm just going to lay up, which means you're going to hit it a little ways and then hit another little ways. So I said, I'm just going to lay up. One of the most odd, wonderful things has ever happened on a golf course. General Williams left his ball, and he walked up to me, and he said, and just like this, he said, you can do this. I thought, well, maybe I can. <laughs> and I got my three wood out, and I lined up, and I, saw, I actually hit it, and I watched it. It soared, and it soared. It didn't land on the green. It went beyond the green. It went, I'd never... Never played that hole a hundred times, never hit it that far. I needed somebody with authority to say, you can do this. Remember a while ago I said I'm General Granger? Well, I'm General Williams now. You can do this. You can do better. You can be better. You can minimize that distance between what you aspire to be and who you are. If you'll give your, all that you have to Jesus, if you will be disciplined, and if you will practice the disciplines, you, you, you can do better. You can be better. Let me close the whole series with this short story. Two, two ducks. Two ducks born in a barnyard. Never left that barnyard. They figured it was enough for them. Oh, every once in a while, they'd look up and they'd see other ducks flying over, and they'd say to each other, wouldn't it be nice to, to soar high and free like they do? But then they'd just turn around and waddle across the barnyard. And the short story ends with these lines. They're somewhat satisfied with the state they're in, but they're not the duck's they might have been. Don't ever let that be said of you, that you're not the boy or girl or man or woman that you might have been. When all is said and done, remember, we are to be remorseful for those seven deadly sins and a countless list of others, but those sins are not the end of the story. You are free. Let's live like the freed people that we are. And there's victory too. 